So tonight is a, a little bit of a different sermon than we normally do. It's not a, um, well, it's not really a sermon sermon in the way of having a text and, you know, working, myself working through it throughout the week and um, giving you some take on that particular scripture, uh, maybe telling some stories and some life application. Today is actually something we call faith questions. Um, I'm tweaking a little bit of the tradition from what it's been in the past uh, because, uh, you know, different pastors have their different strengths and um, cold questions that I'm getting straight off the floor is not a strength of mine. Um, but asking questions is an important part of our faith. Uh, John Wesley believed that very strongly, that um, part of the way we grew in faith was to ask questions of our faith, to not be afraid of questions, um, because in asking we see the places where there are things we don't know um, and where we clarify some of the things that we do. Uh, Rob Bell, if you've never heard of him, he was uh, a megachurch pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan for a while. He wrote a book called Velvet Elvis, and in it he says, Questions, no matter how shocking or blasphemous or arrogant or ignorant or raw, are rooted in humility. A humility that understands that I am not God, and there is more to know. Questions bring freedom. Freedom that I don't have to be God, and I don't have to pretend that I have it all figured out. I can let God be God. I don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have all the answers. And so we ask questions. And that's what we're here to do tonight, uh, to ask questions and um, hear some of my thoughts on them. Now... I want to be clear about that last little bit because these are my thoughts on questions. Um, one of the things that uh, going to seminary and becoming a pastor, um, my role in this community is to be the resident theologian, um, which means I give my best take on scripture at any given moment. Um, but I'm still very much uh, learning and growing. I've only been a pastor now for See, it's five years, five and a half years. Um, you know, my theological education is one of those things that continues to evolve. Um, it, the big studying happened in seminary, but there's always so much more to learn. And so what I may say today um, is not to say that it's infallible or perfect. Uh, it's not to say that it represents anything other than my best understanding and my best attempt to answer these questions in a pastoral way. Uh, so hear that. Um, and also understand something about the United Methodist Church is we are not a creedal church in the sense that um, if, if you've come from a mainline Protestant tradition, you might know about um, the Apostles' Creed or uh, maybe the Nicene Creed if you come from a Catholic uh, background. While we in the United Methodist Church embrace those and we embrace the values of those and the teachings of those, um, we don't base our, uh, the formation of our denomination around those. Uh, we rather have a pretty um, big tent, if you will. And so we allow room for questions and dissent and disagreements, and um, we fall back on some of the basics. We do have something called the Articles of Religion, if you're ever really interested in some good bedtime reading. Um, we have our Book of Discipline, which has our Articles of Religion, uh, which kind of state out what our basic beliefs are. Um, and I think you would find they match up with uh, most of 
well, pretty much most of Christianity. Uh, I can't say all, because, you know, there's a reason that there's like a bazillion different denominations. But uh, for the most part, we'll line up on the basics. You know, Jesus, resurrection, Trinity, these type things. Um, and so that also means when I say things tonight, it may not be 100% the position of the Methodist Church. Um, it may be more my particular understanding. Um, so all of that is to say that I hope that you hear tonight um, something that speaks to you. I hope you hear um, more than anything that questions are okay. And if you don't hear an answer, um, I want you to think of this as a, a dialogue that doesn't have to end tonight. Um, so if I, if I answer a question in a certain way and you disagree, I want you to know it's perfectly okay to come and talk to me about that or Rick about that. Or Kayla about that. Kayla, I'm putting you on the spot there. Rick, I couldn't do that because he's, he's the associate chaplain. Uh, <laughs> Kayla's our wonderful intern. I like questions. Um, and that's not to say that we'll necessarily have all of the same answers. I'm not actually not, I'm even not even speaking for Rick or Kayla here. I'm speaking just for me. So come and um, engage in this as a dialogue. And then one final thought before I get to questions is that um, one of the kind of general themes that ran through a number of the questions was the idea of uh, asking if something was sin. So I want to start off with a definition of what I call sin. Um, this isn't necessarily a uh, uh, super academic answer. This is what I use in my own life to, to evaluate what is sin um, because it's a pretty understandable way. I learned this back when I was in college in campus ministry. Um, and it's that sin is those things that cause harm. Harm either to ourselves, harm to our relationships with others, and harm to our relationship with God. Um, and that's based in the principle of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Um, that's kind of the basic definition of sin. When we step outside of those things is where... Um, we start stepping into that messy ground of what exactly sin is. So, y'all ready? There's some doozies of questions. I, um, I'm going to start with one that's a little easier. Uh, why do people fast? Well, uh, Matthew 6, 16 through 18 says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen, other, bleh, may be seen by others. So I share that because in this, Jesus says, when you fast. So part of the uh, reason that we continue fasting as a practice in the Christian church is because it is something that Jesus believed was um, a part of a faithful life. Um, not so much because fasting has something magical to it. There's nothing magical or super holy about fasting. However, fasting can be a holy experience, a holy time. Um, I'll use uh, myself as an example in that um, in college, uh, I was a part of the leadership team of my campus ministry. And so uh, once a year, we would spend uh, a few days fasting together. Um, and what we would do is rather than having meals, we would gather together in our um, Wesley uh, house and we'd have prayer together three times a day. And the idea behind this was uh, we're replacing our time with, of food with time with God. 
and we're spending this time, we're making a sacrifice, and it didn't make us more holy, but it was a reminder to focus on God. I would also add that fasting food is not the only thing that fasting is. We can fast all kinds of things. When Lent comes up, you hear a lot of people talking about, what are you giving up for Lent? Um, Lent being that, uh, the time between Ash Wednesday and um, Easter. Those uh, six weeks when we traditionally give something up. Um, I'll talk more about that when we get to Lent. But uh, a lot of times it's, I give up, in, well, in some traditions, there's the practice of giving up meats or giving up um, things like that. Or maybe it's giving up uh, TV. Uh, what I like to encourage people to do is to take time and sacrifice something that is not easy to do. Because, you know, I, <laughs> I can really easily cut out uh, something like going to class. That's not too hard for me to cut out. That would be harder for me, actually, to give up. Vegetables would be a hard thing for me to give up. I like vegetables. Um, but yeah, so maybe vegetables for you is easy, and so you're like, yeah, I'm not going to eat any broccoli. That's because I hate broccoli. You know, now, you're, instead, you're invited to, um, to sacrifice something that's going to be a challenge. And so every time you, uh, one of the practices is every time you think about, oh, I'd say you gave up coffee, which would be really hard for me. Every time I think about, oh, I really want a cup of coffee right now, I think, well, okay, that's a reminder. I'm not having coffee right now. And that's a reminder to maybe spend a time, a moment in prayer. Um, so fasting is a practice to get us closer to God. It, there's nothing holy, particularly holy about it or magical. Um, so I didn't plan good transition for questions. Is God too big for any one religion? Now, this may be, uh, sound a little controversial, but wait, wait, hear me out here. The short answer is yes. Um, while I very firmly believe in the Christian faith, and um, I believe in the Trinity, and in uh, Jesus who came and died, um, that he was real, and he lived, and he died on a cross, and he was resurrected, and in Christ we are redeemed, and we are forgiven, and we are set free. I believe all of that 100%. But I say God is too big for any one religion um, because I think it would be the height of arrogance to claim that I have a, the sole understanding because obviously I'm so smart. I've entirely encapsulated uh, God in this one religion we call Christianity. Or even, if I want to be a little broader and say 2,000 years of church history has fully encapsulated God in this one religion. I don't think that we can say that. And I don't think I, I, I don't feel comfortable saying that God doesn't move in ways that we don't even understand, that God doesn't move in ways and in places um, where the gospel has never been preached in a formal way. There's fewer and fewer of those places on earth, but um, I believe God can move in anywhere and everywhere at any time. And so to say God is limited to one religion, I don't know if, if maybe this is asking a different question. Um, I think God is bigger than religion because God is bigger than any one concept that we can have. Uh, here's another fun one, kind of related to what uh, Emma Claire 
mentioned earlier. Why do we talk about God with masculine pronouns and do we have to? Um, and the short answer to that is it's mostly tradition. Um, most of scripture is written with masculine language for God. Um, some traditions have gone through and tried to weed out some of the unnecessary masculine language, but um, you know, there's, it was written in, in masculine format. And if you're being true to the text, that's a little more complicated. And there's other questions we have to ask about what it means to change the text. Um, not to say that that is right or wrong, uh, but it's asking the questions of this, this text. And, you know, for the most part, why we do it still today, why in a lot of traditions people use masculine language um, outside of uh, the primary usage of God in the Bible is, is masculine, is that it's comfortable. Um, but here's, here's what I believe about gender and God. Uh, like I was just saying, God is bigger than gender. Um, God's outside of gender, because gender is a human trait. Um, it's kind of a, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the word here. What, the word where you give human characteristics to other things. Personification, there we go. And, you know, we're, it's putting personification of, of humanity onto God, because God's so much bigger than that. Um, yes, we are created in the image of God, but I don't think gender is particularly what the image of God is, because God is, if, God, if all of us are created in the image of God, then male and female, and maybe those who fall somewhere on a spectrum, are all encapsulated. And God is both and all and none, all at the same time. Because again, there's this concept of God that is so much bigger than we can encapsulate. And so, a lot of times people are using it because we've always been taught about the old man with the gray-white beard up in heaven looking down on us, and so we use masculine language. Um, sometimes it's also, like, if, if you hear me use it, I really try as much as possible to use neutral, um, except for when I'm reading scripture, because I tend to just read it right as I have it in, in the uh, translations that I like using. But other than that, if, if I slip in a he, there, here, there, or his, um, it's more because that's what I grew up with, and it slips out sometimes. Um, but for me, it's not about saying that God is masculine. Um, and it's certainly not to uh, denigrate uh, the feminine aspects of God, because you can read through Scripture and find those as well. Uh, so, do we have to? Not at all. You can refer to God in whatever way you most closely identify and understand God. Because I guarantee you when you pray, um, and we're talking about just in private prayer, uh, however you pray, however you call on God, whatever name you happen to use, because you know there's half a dozen or so different um, names that we use for God or ways we talk about God in uh, Scripture um, between the Greek and the Hebrew, and whatever way you call on it, God is going to hear that. And God knows our hearts. And that's what's most important. Um, whew, I'm getting thirsty here. Is God perfect? And what does that mean? Um, 
I think of all the questions I got asked, this is probably the one I struggled the most with. Uh, just because I want to ask the same question the person who asked it. Um, is God perfect? What does that mean? What does perfection mean to you? Um, one thing to think about when we think about perfection, and especially our understanding of perfection, a lot of it goes back to Plato. Um, so it's, we can talk about the age of the universe, age of God, age of the world. Um, it's not actually that old. And if we go back to our, uh, the Jewish believer, so there isn't a real indication then that the Jewish believers or the early Christians thought of God as perfect. Um, I don't think it's a question they necessarily asked, so I don't really find necessarily anything in Scripture that says God is perfect. Um, and that's mostly because perfection is, is, on a, uh, is defined around right and wrong ethics and doing the right things. And I don't know if we can put God in that bubble of this is what perfect is. Um, and this again goes back to not saying we can't really understand God all the time. There are some things that are just beyond us. Think about um, when you were a kid and your parents told you not to do something. Um, and you couldn't understand why and it didn't make any sense. But now that you're an adult, it makes more sense. Because, oh yeah, when they told me not to touch the hot stove, it wasn't because they didn't want me to get what was in the pot. It's because they didn't want me to burn my hand. You know, sometimes we in humanity in our limited experience of the world and of everything and our limited ability to see and understand, there are things that we might not understand at all. And so to say God is perfect or not perfect, I think it's a difficult question to ask because I don't think we can put God in that enough to understand is God perfect. Um, but <laughs> I will leave you with this thought on God's perfection. I believe 100% always that God is perfectly loving and that God's ne God, and in that God never fails to love us in everything no matter what. Um, so yeah. Um, we can get into some more uh, maybe controversial questions. I've re I really tried to get through all, as many questions as possible. I only left three on the table not answered, um, which I'd be glad to talk to anyone about those as well. Um, it's nothing particular except for I'm at eight pages already on here. And I'm conscious of the fact that I'm really going long and I'm not even halfway there. Um, if God is so loving, why is there a hell? Uh, I want to start off by quoting what Mark Schaefer, our university chaplain, said to me that he shared, uh, or he stole from uh, a Catholic who said, uh, We know that there is a hell, but we're not sure that anyone is in there. And basically saying that, you know, we know God is merciful, especially among Catholics, there's um, praying for those who have passed already, for those who have died. And um, praying God's mercy on that person. Uh, the idea of, uh, and I, I hear different, I'm not a Catholic scholar, so I don't know exactly what current Catholic doctrine is. I know there's a time where they had purgatory and there was like 
hell and purgatory and heaven. And purgatory was like this waiting place and you could go maybe either way. Um, and from there, you could actually go to heaven. So, I don't know. That's kind of where that, that thought comes from. But it's not a bad place to start for us. Um, as well as, you know, a lot of our modern understanding of hell doesn't actually come from the Bible. Which is shocking when we start to think about that. Um, most of our modern understanding of hell actually comes from Dante's Inferno. Which is a fictional story about... Dante, who um, goes from the depths of hell to the heights of heaven um, in this visionary uh, quest journey that he has. And um, a lot of the imagery that we use around hell, a lot of the ways we talk about it, not that he didn't pull things from scripture and there's not things that are scriptural in there. I just wouldn't say that Dante's work is more than a work of fiction. Um, also, also, interestingly enough, um, uh, according to most biblical scholars, or at least many biblical scholars, it was not until um, the rise of something we call apocalyptic literature, which is the um, uh, end times, what happens next, and by next I don't mean like after worship, but like Next, uh, uh, apocalyptic literature. This came around about uh, during the time of the Maccabees. And if you get, grab a Bible that has an apocrypha, um, you can read through some of uh, the Maccabees story about when all that was uh, beginning to bubble up. Uh, and that was about 200 years before Christ. Uh, and prior to that, they didn't really have a concept of hell or afterlife. Um, Early Jewish thinking was more that um, it is from the dust we have come and from the dust we will return. Something that we echo in our own tradition as well. That life was life and at the end of life was death. Um, which is a little differently than we, when we think about things. Now, that's not to say that I don't believe in, um, in an afterlife. Uh, but just a kind of put some context around where our thinking comes from and historically, theologically, where these things come from. Uh, is there a hell? Uh, well, one other historical fact is to notice that how much of our heaven-hell language comes from the idea of Hades. Um, and also around that time in the Maccabees, all of this was the general thinking, and it started permeating in a number of different religions. Um, it's not to say there was no afterlife thought in any religion before that, um, but all of this kind of swirls together around the time of the Greeks and the Romans and the Jewish civilization that was um, coming to its more or less conclusion at the uh, end of the Old Testament and moving into the Roman era before the dissolution of, of the Jerusalem, the Israelite people. All of this is happening and swirling around. Um, and so we come back to this question about death and hell. And is God is good? Does hell exist? I don't think I can say for certain what exactly 
hell is. Um, I can tell you I don't believe hell is uh, fire, brimstone, burning, torture. I don't believe a good and loving God would torture people for all time. My general understanding of God is that God gives us free will and gives us choice. And I believe after this life we have the opportunity to live with God or not with God. And um, to borrow a, another pastor friend's mind's definition of hell, hell is the total absence of God. Um, and so, I don't know if you can call that a place, um, but I believe there is the opportunity that God's not going to force God's self on all of us, even in eternity. And we have the opportunity to choose God all along the way. Um, and into the hereafter. And I believe God gives us the opportunity, if we would rather not live in eternity with God, um, God would allow us to be in the complete absence of God, which would, to me, means nothingness. Uh, that's probably not the most satisfying answer. Um, and that's mostly because I think our concepts of heaven and hell um, and the afterlife and what all this means have been questions we've been asking for centuries and generations. And it's not just our religion that asks this question, but almost every religion asks this question. What does it mean? Where does life go? What, what, what happens? Because we know what happens now. We know what life is. What is afterlife? And none of us really know. Uh, there's not really been good accounts slash necessarily persuasive accounts of what happens after. There are those who say they have experienced heaven. Um, they've gone and come back. Uh, well, I'll let you decide for yourself whether you believe those or not. I'm not going to say they're not true. I can't really say that they are because I just don't know either. I do believe heaven is beyond our understanding and that our concept of heaven um, is probably much, much different than actually what heaven is because I believe heaven is so glorious and grand and extravagant and all-encompassing. Like, I imagine, my, my, the best imagination I have of heaven is total and complete existence with God. Um, and I'm pretty sure that's way beyond anything I can understand or even begin to formulate an image of. Uh, so, yeah, that's a lot of question. I, um, so that could also be continued much more for those who want to talk more about that. Uh, another really tough question. Uh, repentance means no longer committing sin, or at least trying not to. Um, how do you explain gay pastors? I really appreciate whoever asked this question. Um, and I turn back to the beginning where I said there's, there's lots of hard and honest questions um, that come from honest-seeking places. And so I want to honor that question um, in maybe not the most satisfying way. Partly because to, to talk about my entire theology about sexuality and what I understand about homosexuality and bisexuality, 
Uh, it, it would take several sermons, <laughs> several weeks to preach about and teach about. Um, I'd want to go through each one of these. Uh, there's typically six scriptures that we use to condemn homosexuality in the Bible. Um, and I say we, meaning in general history of the Christian church. Um, I've studied them. I've learned them. I've spent a lot of time praying about them. And what I came to is that uh, the conclusions that much of the church has come to for the last 2,000 years, I don't agree with. I might be wrong. I'm fully open to being wrong. Um, I try my best to be as uh, open to God's movements and the Spirit's movements in my life, especially when I'm reading Scripture and when I'm studying and theologizing. And if that can be, I mean, that is a thing. If you call what I do theology, I really struggle with calling myself a theologian because that sounds like, oh, and I'm like, I'm just me. I'm, I'm a guy who knows some things, and there's a lot of things I still don't know. Um, so. When I read in the Bible about homosexuality, I just, for me, it's not sin, and so there's nothing to be repented for. And a big part of that goes back to the definition of what I said in the beginning was I, I, my understanding of sin. What is harming us? What is harming our relationship with God? What is harming our relationship with others? Um, I know LGBT Christians who, you look at them, and you look at us, I should say. Um, you tend to not project things on others. It's, uh, I have trouble seeing couples when they get married who look in one another's eyes and they, they offer vows with, to one another. They open themselves up to share their lives with one another. To be united, not just in a legal way, but before God, I have trouble calling that love sin. I have trouble with seeing two people who are committing their lives to one another, seeing that as sin. And then, and again, this, there could be lots of different things I could talk about here, um, but I want to leave with this thought. Um, turning it back to Scripture, because I think it's important that we, that we uh, listen to and read all of Scripture. And so there's those six verses, but then there's other parts that say uh, things like Matthew 7. And this is particularly about the question about how can there be gay pastors? You will know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And when we start talking about LGBT people and being clergy and being called by God and being Christian, I say, let's examine them by their fruit. What is the fruit of their lives? What is the evidence of God in their life? To kind of define that word fruit. What is the evidence of God in their life? The active um, presence of God in their life. What are the things you see in their lives? And if you can look at someone and honestly say, I don't see anything about God in you, first question you should ask yourself about anybody is, 
why am I not seeing God in this person? And the second question is, how can I be God for this person? Because we are all called to be the hands and feet of Christ. And that means we're called to love everyone and to care for everyone. And I want to close it on this thought. The church is very divided on this. The United Methodist Church is incredibly divided on this. This is actually one of the areas I was specifically talking about in the beginning, where the United Methodist Church's teachings and I are not compatible, if I can use that incompatible language, um, because the church teaches something different than I teach. Um, I also believe there are good people on both sides of this. And what I hope in everything you learn from me is that we don't have to divide ourselves by our issues, by our different interpretations of Scripture, by our different understandings of God, our different ways we see God in the world. I'll tell you, Blaine and I, who's at Chi Alpha, I'm pointing to their alcove over here, so he's not in the back, but Blaine and I are actually... um, have a good collegial relationship. We get coffee at least once a month and we sit down and talk about our communities. And one of the things that we came to really quickly is our communities are very different. We have some very different theology, some different ways of living um, our Christian faith and what we believe is right and wrong. But at the end of the day, he believes this community is reaching people for Christ in a way that his community can't because we reach people who might not ever walk through the doors of Chi Alpha and vice versa. At the end of the day, I hope among anything controversial, you'll hear that. I'm really out of time here, and I still have way more questions. <laughs> um, what, I, what I am going to do is I will post this, and there's some, there, I promise there's nothing I'm skipping over here. Um, actually, there, there's I'll, there's three questions that I want to um, go over real quick because the answer to all of them is oh, yes, it's okay. <laughs> One is, is it okay to date in the UMSA community? And absolutely. Um, is interracial dating okay? Absolutely. <laughs> the only thing, only conditions around dating in this community are what is building each other up. So there's no concern. As long as you are supporting each other, it's a mutually uh, affirming relationship um, that uh, you are both committed to equally, um, as long as you're being healthy in that relationship. Um, that's the basis of relationship. Uh, so, yes, we allow dating in our community. Um, Everything else, and there's a couple other controversial questions here. There was one about abortion. There was one about evolution. There's, and I have answers written down here. I didn't get to them. Um, what I will do is I, I will actually post this online for everybody. Um, I encourage you to read it. Some of, you'll see where I kind of, I try to stay short and concise, but I also tend to wander off. So, um, yeah, but it's 6 o'clock already, and so I want to go ahead and close this out here and say I thank you, everyone, for your questions. Um, we should probably do this again, um, maybe soon. Maybe find out another way to do this so we're not so time-limited. Um, so, yeah, thank you.